want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. Imagine what it would be like to visit a galaxy far, far away. Where would you go first? With almost infinite choices, would you choose a new planet? One rarely seen or explored? Or would you visit one of the more famous worlds of legend in the Outer Rim or within the core? I'm Mark Marquis. Welcome aboard. In Episode 10, let's try something different. The planets of Star Wars have stirred my imagination since I was a youngling. I've been thinking about a way to feature them in the podcast. But there could never be enough time to highlight all the planets in one episode. Even by sticking to the main films, that would be more than 20 planets. I've been following the progress of Galaxy's Edge, the new Star Wars land being built in Disneyland in Disney World. And with each new update, I'm growing more intrigued by the possibilities of a fully immersive Star Wars experience where we feel as if we're visiting a planet in that galaxy with all the sights, sounds, and smells and being able to rub elbows with characters from the saga. So it got me thinking, what if I could do something like that on this podcast and visit several planets over the course of several episodes? An ongoing series within a series, if you will. This will require us to tap into our imaginations and put ourselves into the roles of people who actually live in the Star Wars galaxy. There'll be some conceits to establish first, such as each planet we visit will require a new set of rules for who we can be while visiting. I'll change it up from planet to planet. Some will take place before the start of the Clone War. Some will exist within the time frame of the sequel trilogy. Sometimes we'll be smugglers or bounty hunters. Other times we'll be tourists or dignitaries. Sound fun? Okay then, let's get started. Where should we go first? Who should we be? Let's pick just three planets, choose some parameters at the outset about what our story will be, and then we'll embark. Our first destination is kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Start on Tatooine, the first one of them all. But let's think of it another way. As citizens of this galaxy, it's only logical to begin at System 000, the core world at the heart of it all, Coruscant. That gleaming orb at the near center of the galaxy far, far away gives urban sprawl a whole new meaning. Every square kilometer of its surface is covered by one massive city. It's a hub for travel, communication, culture, economics, and politics. Serving as the capital for the Republic, the most heavily traveled hyperspace lanes begin and end here, which allowed Coruscant to expand its reach as far as the Outer Rim and provided direct access to trillions of life forms who dreamed of a better life in the most bustling world of the Republic. 
We've arrived as tourists, eager to take in as many sights of the big city planet as we can. Soon after arriving, we board a Giga-class transport called the Ultimo Vista, which has been in operation for decades and circles the planet on a non-stop leisure cruise. The Ultimo Vista is a kind of self-sufficient city unto itself. Some of the older passengers aren't tourists at all. They're residents who once boarded the pleasure craft just like we did, but loved it so much they decided to call it home. But we don't currently have plans to relocate to Coruscant. We just want a chance to explore its grandeur. And the first stop on this tour is where representatives from a thousand worlds convene to pass legislation that will shape the future of this republic. The Senate's domed exterior is two kilometers in diameter. Inside, it supports the platforms of over 1,000 senators of member worlds. Its elaborate network of interlocking antechambers and private meeting sanctums suggest a honeycomb of political intrigue, backroom deals, and nefarious negotiations far from the light of public oversight and transparency. Each senator's mobile platform docks at a station, behind which is almost a kilometer of office and living space for that senator's staff and aides, every room of which is tailored to the senator's species and homeworld environment. We're taken through the senatorial chambers of the Quarren aquatic species, which contain bathing pools that the Quarren use to keep their skin moist. We visit the chambers of the Wookiee representatives and notice how the interiors of their workspace contain remnants of their arboreal homeworld, Kashyyyk. Columns made of timber, native to their planet, adorn the space. There's even a section designated for rest and relaxation. Naps are very important to Wookiees. As we're shepherded through the busy upper corridors of the Senate Hall, we can hear activity inside the main chamber. We aren't allowed to enter the Senate's great rotunda while the Senate is in session, but a simulcast is playing on every screen in the building. Security all around the Senate is tight. There was some excitement earlier in the week when an explosion nearly claimed the life of one of the prominent senators, a senator from Naboo, according to the Holonet. She is shown on the monitors all around addressing the Senate, her expression dire. These are troubling times. Star systems are seceding from the Republic by the thousands, and there are rumblings and rumors that war is imminent. But we won't let such troubling thoughts spoil our vacation. We return to our transport and re-enter the endless rivers of traffic which fill the skies above Coruscant. These sky lanes are mostly auto-navigated, a necessity with so many vehicles sharing limited airspace in the clouds. Our pre-programmed route takes us out of the federal district with its gleaming towers many kilometers tall. Far below, these buildings sprout from the remains of older buildings swallowed up long ago by the city's voracious advancement skyward. We watch the urban terrain pass below us unchanged until we reach a kind of marker, a place where the architecture becomes noticeably less elegant and audacious. We're now entering the entertainment district. The upper levels contain restaurants, eateries, canteens, and diners. One of the more notable establishments is Dex's Diner, 
which serves Coruscant's working class 24 hours a day and has the best Besseliskan stew in all of the Corps. In the lower levels, nightclubs, gambling houses, theaters, and all manner of hedonistic hideaways serve the limitless demand of off-world visitors and locals alike. And below those levels, in the sub-levels, is an even darker world of avarice, decadence, with more than a fair amount of danger. That is the dark underworld of Coruscant, the domain of fugitives, scavengers, and, even according to legend, cannibalistic species. That world is definitely not for the faint of heart. For now, we're sticking with the safer, although no less decadent pleasures of the Outlander Club in the Uskru district. The moment we pass under the welcoming arms logo of the Outlander sign and enter the club, our senses are assaulted by a cacophony of sights and sounds. Garishly dressed humans make up the bulk of the crowd, but there are a variety of other species present, such as Ithorians, Chadrafans, and Twi'leks with jewel-adorned Leku, pausing just long enough to give us the once-over before they turn back, unimpressed, to their drinks. The club is designed like a spoke wheel, with the bar at the center. Radiating outward are croppings of booths and tables, beyond which are gaming stations with holographic game screens, sabak tables, and Dejaric chessboards. Gamblers come from all over the galaxy to try their luck here. Some never leave, choosing to use the club's limited residential chambers to live a full-time life of gambling. As long as the currency holds, that is. The Outlander is one of the few places on Coruscant where we can gamble on pod racing, a sport so dangerous it's been outlawed in most of the Republic. We pass a screen showing a pod race on the ice world of Ando Prime, and we're too distracted to notice that a Rodian has taken an interest in us. He wants to know if we would like to visit his betting kiosk to wager on the next race. We consider it for a moment and politely decline. After a few drinks, we decide we've had enough revelry and head for a waiting repulsor taxi just outside the exit. There is so much more of Coruscant to explore, but our time is running short. We consider touring the industrial district, known as the Works, but there's not much to see there, since most of the industries that use that district were moved to cheaper facilities off-world. We only have one more destination, and it's a chance of a lifetime. Our transport approaches the multi-spired structure of the venerable Jedi Temple. Normally the public is forbidden from entering the temple, but this is a special exception as the Jedi have opened their great temple to the public for one week only at the request of Chancellor Palpatine. We are among the very few outsiders to ever see the inner workings of this mysterious sect of religious, philosophical peacekeepers of the Republic. The 1,000-year-old temple boasts towers flanking a central tower. We're told that each tower represents a different administrative function with its own council. The Council of First Knowledge oversees all matters pertinent to ancient Jedi wisdom. The Council of Reconciliation moderates disputes between planets in conflict with one another and works to attain peace. The Reassignment Council oversees the missions given to apprentices that have not yet been chosen as Padawans. The High Council governs all matters of the Jedi Order. The central tower is the Temple Spire, 
rumored to be built over a much older spire that the Jedi still keep closed to the public. We ask the Jedi to confirm this story, but they decline, with inscrutable smiles, holding fast to their secrets. Few in our tour group have ever seen a Jedi, and others doubted they even existed, believing instead they were figments of mythology. But Chancellor Palpatine, eager to demonstrate transparency, has taken the first steps in demystifying one of the most secretive institutions serving the Republic's peacekeeping bureaucracy. Each tower of the Jedi Temple contains a complex communication array with a multi-frequency eradicator scrambler that can tap into hyperspace and keep council members apprised of the missions of Jedi all across the galaxy. The Jedi maintain that the Temple is not a single structure, but a complex of many structures built, destroyed, rebuilt, and improved over time. The shape of the temple is unique and distinctive from the rest of the architecture on Coruscant. The Jedi tell us the ziggurat base and spires are an ancient design which represent a Padawan's journey towards enlightenment. We ascend the processional staircase under four looming statues, two warrior masters and two sage masters, and pass between stone pylons containing relief sculptures of the founders of the temple. We are now inside the monumental entrance hall. The outside light finds its way inside through clerestories, forming long shafts piercing the hazy stillness. There is a serene feeling to this place, a holy place. Everyone speaks in whispers, fearful of disturbing the tranquility that surrounds us. More statues tower overhead, depicting various figures in Jedi history. We don't understand the Jedi way of life or its purpose, or how they serve the Republic, but they have built a beautiful shrine to their lifestyle, and we are in awe. Circular mosaics, symbolizing balance and harmony, adorn the floors throughout the temple. We pass by something called the Room of a Thousand Fountains, but we aren't allowed to enter. We pass hallways of meditation chambers, as far as the eye can see, but we aren't allowed to enter. We are shown the library and data storage stacks from a balcony high above, but yet again, not allowed to enter. By the time we pass the inaccessible holocron vaults, it becomes clear the Jedi are giving the public but a glimpse of their innermost secrets. As we're escorted out of the temple and back to our waiting transport, we pass hundreds of young Jedi practicing martial training with some kind of glowing stick. And we wonder, what are the Jedi so careful to protect? What do they have to hide? For our next planet, let's change the setup. We're no longer tourists visiting in peacetime. Now we are refugees fleeing the Clone War, which has moved from world to world like a wildfire stripping planets of their resources and throwing their populations into turmoil. All we want is to move out further into the Outer Rim and to find a quiet place to build a new life, far from the violence and discord of a galaxy at war with itself. Our evacuation transport stops at a backwater planet between hyperspace lanes few know about. Grid N19, green-brown in coloration, terrestrial with a diameter of 12,900 kilometers, population 95 million. At first glance, 
It supports no visible signs of life. It's a barren rock, no vegetation, no water, and violent, howling winds torment its surface. So why are we here? Because this planet's shelter is not on the surface, but inside deep shafts that extend miles into its crust. Sinkholes. Welcome to Utapau. Tucked away from the bustle of hyperspace traffic, Utapau has been largely ignored by the rest of the galaxy, which makes it an ideal place for people who want to disappear or get far away from the action. Utapau is also the kind of world that's easy to misjudge because its riches are hidden far below its surface. It's not a lifeless rock. It supports not one, but three sentient races, and its vast ocean runs from pole to pole deep underground. The surface water drained into the subcrust long ago, and the planet's vegetation was scraped from its face by the violent hyperwinds. Our transport enters the atmosphere and flies above the scarred terrain, seeking our landing port. The winds shake our craft in terrible turbulence, threatening to rattle us out of the sky before we can ever land. But soon we see it the massive yawning hole that announces we have found Pow City. The spaceport of Pow City has many levels and structures built on the inside of its cavernous walls. Most of the structures are ossic, which is a kind of architecture which uses the bones of animals, the only building material left on Utapau after all trees were destroyed by the planet's storms. All types of bones are used, from fresh to ancient, and even mined fossilized bones, which are used to construct the largest, strongest support structures, the most common of which are titanic rib cages of extinct Rua whales. Our ship descends until it comes to rest on a large platform jutting from the cliff face exterior. As soon as we reach the boarding plank, we feel the hot sun on our faces. Winds high above howl with fury. And we immediately notice the smell. The air is heavy with salt and mineral. Minerals from the limestone of the sinkhole. Salt from the ocean water far below in the bottom of the shaft. The blades of giant turbines rotate steadily in the air currents, providing the only source of energy for the entire city. Enormous winged creatures called dactylians ride the air currents around and above our landing pad. The leathery skin of their wings turning them into gliding experts. Gliding helps conserve the massive energy requirements of flight. A trio of child-sized ute work busily around the underbelly of our transport, connecting fuel lines and opening cooling valves which vent clouds of exhaust steam. The ute share a symbiotic relationship with the Powans, the other sentient race residing within the city. Both species learned to work together centuries ago in order to tame the planet's savage environment by moving their civilization underground. Powans are a long-lived species. They tower above most bipedal races and live many hundreds of years. Their pale skin, black eyes, and sharp teeth, suitable for a diet of raw meat, make them fearsome in appearance. But the Powans are generally regarded as gentle and empathic, often offering their port city to travelers needing supplies or a place of refuge, just like us. Our group is met by port administrator Tian Midan, who welcomes us with kind words and assures us that we are welcome for however long we need to stay. 
and even offers us a tour of the city. Having been cooped up inside a metal box for several hundred light years, we eagerly accept his invitation. After we visit passenger registration at Port Control, we're shown around the maze-like city, which extends far into the natural caves of the sinkhole. The upper level, where we arrived, is called the Civic Level. This is where the city's government offices are located. This level also contains stables for the city's animal transports, the dactylions, which we've already seen, provide air transport, and the domesticated viractals, large feathered lizards, are used to quickly traverse the levels of Pau City by foot. We pass through the promenade of Seven Guilds, a ceremonial thoroughfare, and take a turbo lift down to the level below, where most of the city's economic industries are housed. The wealth level, as it's called, is where seawater is pumped from the sub-levels below and sent through reclamation processing to remove all minerals, which are then exported, and the leftover fresh water used for the city's population. Also located here are the factories producing commercial products such as home appliances and personal technologies. The produce level is next on our tour. In this part of the city, agriculture and animal breeding and training are main industries. Ocean kelp is harvested inside vast greenhouse structures, and the dactylions and viractals are bred in captivity here and trained for their service above. There's also a wide variety of smaller animals raised here to provide food for the carnivorous powans. The Ute, with the exception of wealthier individuals who live one level up, mostly call the produce level home. The lowest and last level on our tour is the mining level. This is where we see the city's waste disposal system and where many of the bones making the Ossic structures are mined. Here we are the closest to the underground ocean. We can see azure blue pockets of ocean water dotting the sinkhole floor. The water's color is caused mostly by the calcium minerals in the rock. We're told not to stay here too long, however, as it can be a dangerous place. Attacks by ferocious Rasputi seals is not uncommon and members of Utapau's third sentient race, the primitive Amani, have settled in these lower caves, and Amani can be a savage and unpredictable race if they feel threatened. As we return to the civic level, we notice some excitement as our Powan hosts are scrambling to attend to some new development. Confused, we look around at all the excitement and wonder what could unsettle this peaceful tranquility. We turn our eyes skyward to the sinkhole opening and find the answer. A fleet of ships from the Separatist Alliance are descending. Our hearts sink as we realize there's truly no place left in the galaxy untouched by the Clone War. Our third and final destination finds us as delegates of the Confederacy of Independent Systems We've been assigned the task of visiting the new weapons and supply installation on a quiet, distant planet in the Outer Rim. Ever since the trade blockade of Naboo, more and more star systems have chosen to break with the Republic. Count Dooku formed the Separatist Alliance as a way to counter the tyranny of the Republic under Chancellor Palpatine's uncompromising grip. The defeat on Naboo proved that the Confederacy must be armed to the teeth if we ever have a chance to protect our space and our trade routes. This installation was built in secret 
and is now ready to begin production on a new battalion of battle droids for the Confederacy. Our transport exits hyperspace, and our viewports reveal bright rings encircling the rusty red world of Geonosis. The rings were formed long ago, when a comet collided with its moon. Debris rained down on the surface, killing plant and animal life in great numbers. After the nuclear winter ended, Geonosis was left with rings and a surface frequented by radiation storms. The only sentient race on the planet was forced to live underground inside massive hives, and thus the Geonosian culture was born. The Geonosians are unlike most any other civilization in the galaxy. They are a collective, working efficiently and quickly, making them excellent purveyors of industry. Count Dooku secretly contracted them to produce hundreds of thousands of new battle droids in their complex subterranean factories. We will be touring these factories while here, and also taking advantage of Geonosian hospitality by attending a public event given in our honor. We don't want to spend too much time on the surface, however. In addition to the radiation storms, the surface still contains some life, most of it dangerous such as huge insectoids called merdeths and roving packs of wild massives. As our transport makes its descent, the terrain of Geonosis comes into view. We pass over canyons and dunes, vents of white billowing gas, trenches and spires. The spires are not natural. They are the topmost portion of the vast underground complex which awaits our inspection. We land at a fueling station adjacent to one of these spires we have arrived at the Stalgassen Hive, the corporate headquarters of the Geonosian Industrial Complex. We exit the transport and make our way inside. What appeared as a simple rock formation outside suddenly becomes so much more as we enter. We're now inside a massive cathedral, designed with elaborate and beautiful artistry. There are interlocking buttresses and columns Large, pinnacle-shaped windows, made out of a kind of resin, allow warm light to pour in. The glass appears almost like amber, translucent enough to allow the light to pass, but too thick to show us what's outside. The smell is unique, to say the least. It's dusty and earthen, like wet, moldy clay. Humidity is noticeably higher inside the hive than outside, and there's a whiff of something more, almost like an electric fire mixed with carbon grease. A stout Geonosian, less than two meters tall, approaches. He walks with a cane, which appears more ceremonial than utilitarian. He is the Archduke, ruler of the Stalgassen Hive, and our host on Geonosis. Poggle the Lesser, as he's called, tells us that the factory has been operational for many weeks now and at peak efficiency, and he's eager to show us what it has to offer. As we're escorted down into the lower levels of the structure, we can hear the rumbling of machines, conveyors, and assembly lines. While much of the production in the factory is done through automation, its process is overseen by hordes of Geonosian drones. The Geonosian culture is a caste-based society. The working class, otherwise known as drones, are little more than fodder. Dispensable cogs, which keep the Geonosian industrial complex running smoothly. Drones lack individuality, which is reserved for the ruling class, made up largely of Geonosian warriors. 
the warrior class has also kept all of the planet's wealth for themselves. Drones, however, far outnumber the warriors. Drones pose a threat to the ruling class if they're not contained properly. We'll be given a demonstration of this containment later in our visit. The factory extends more than a kilometer into the earth, and the rhythmic rumbling of machines shakes the entire structure. We can barely hear our guide, who takes us to the Droidica manufacturing level, where we see how the spherical destroyers are assembled one part at a time. We witness the towering central hub delivering payloads of molten ore, which are then stamped by giant presses into their respective parts. Repulsor lift labor droids called SLTs buzz through the factory. Their giant forklift arms outstretched and ready to clear any debris which gets caught in the factory's complex conveyor system. That debris includes Geonosian drones as well. Drones are tasked with tweaking the factory's moving parts to maintain peak efficiency, and that vigilance often results in crushed drones, which are replaced quickly by new drones eager to continue the work. We're escorted to a conveyor walkway running parallel to rows containing thousands of welder droids. White sparks explode in the humid factory air all around. It's quite a dazzling, if not nerve-wracking, display. We feel the heat rise and realize we're getting closer to the complex ore processor. This is where metal ore is crushed and then liquefied by a powerful industrial laser. The ore is then poured into a chain of waiting vats, which carry the ore into a secondary heating chamber. This is where any remaining impurities are burned away. What we've seen during this visit has astounded us. Count Dooku wisely chose to commission the Geonosians not only for their proficiency with manufacturing, but also because their subterranean factories are ideal in building the separatist armies far from the prying eyes of Republic bureaucrats. With the factory tour complete, we're being taken to a special event held in our honor. Petronaki Arena is a natural plateau formation on the surface of Geonosis, which has been modified with towers and tunnels and catacombs to serve as a staging place for public spectacle. We've heard tell of the Geonosian thirst for blood sport, but we had no idea it was housed in such a lavish arena. Petronaki, also known as the Arena of Justice, or simply the Execution Arena, originated when the earliest leaders fought each other for dominance as a form of public entertainment. As a collective hive society, the millions of drones were prone to violent revolts or destructive infighting, if not thoroughly occupied with work. And since drones required rest and recreation to maintain productivity, they had to be occupied in their downtime as well. This practice of providing violent games as a source of containment started with the earliest overlords of Geonosis and has continued until this day. To honor our hosts, our delegation has brought a wild beast as a gift to the Geonosians. They use various animals in ritual sacrifices and executions within the arena. The creature we brought to Geonosis inside the belly of our transport is a female narglatch, smuggled off Naboo during the occupation 10 years ago. The fierce swamp cat is a stealthy predator that normally takes its time making a kill. But this narglatch has been starved just long enough that it will make short work of its prey when given a chance. 
we follow Poggle the Lesser as he enters the arena to address the throngs of drones and warriors from his archducal box. There are a hundred thousand attendees, and the excitement has reached fever pitch. Before an execution ceremony, Geonosians ingest a type of fungus that interacts with the chemical composition of their bodies. This produces a pheromone that causes euphoria. The arena is literally buzzing with rowdy, intoxicated thrill-seekers. After a brief commencement, the ceremony begins. Three openings appear below in the flat sandy floor of the arena. Elevator lifts bring three individuals up into the bright light of day. We squint, trying to identify them. Dark leathery skin, ragged clothes, small beady eyes, their hands and feet chained. We soon recognize them as Weequay. Pirates, Poggle the Lesser explains. These pirates were apprehended trying to hijack supply shipments headed for Geonosis in recent days. A large metal gate rises at ground level at the far side of the arena. We hold our breaths until a muscular gray shape crawls from the shadow. It's our Nargleth female, followed by two Geonosian picadors riding ores and carrying stun sticks. The riders trail just behind the giant cat, poking it ever so often to keep it moving in the same direction, straight towards the prisoners in the center of the arena. The Weequay pirates see the creature and are very still. After a moment, they begin to panic, desperately trying to pull themselves loose from their chains. The crowds grow louder as the Nargleth is pushed closer to the Weequay. We think we can smell the pheromones in the air, a distinctive odor similar to decaying flesh. But since the Weequay species is also known for having pheromones, we're unable to distinguish between the pheromones of Geonosian bloodlust or that of Weequay fear. The Nargleth, hissing and scowling at each prod of the Picador's stun sticks, suddenly sees its quarry just a few meters ahead. Its body goes stiff. It hones in on the squirming targets, lowering its massive body until its belly is on the ground, its legs close to its side in a stalking posture. The suspense is agonizing. And then it happens so quickly, we almost can't see it. If the Geonosians assemble weapons as good as they conduct executions, the Republic doesn't stand a chance. Our excursions have come to an end, for now. I'll be visiting more worlds in future episodes. If you have some favorite planets that you'd like for me to explore, let me know by sending your suggestions to clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com and put Forever Star Wars in the subject. The only request I have is that you choose a planet that's appeared in either the TV series or the films. I had a lot of fun researching this episode, and I used some amazing resources that you should check out if you haven't already. These include Star Wars Complete Locations, illustrated by Hans Jensen, Richard Chasemore, and Kemp Remillard. That one is published by DK, Penguin Random House. Also, check out The Wildlife of Star Wars, A Field Guide, by Terrell Whitlatch and Bob Caro. 
Both books feature spectacular illustrations exploring the deep corners of the Star Wars galaxy, and they are packed with extensive and fascinating nuggets of info. And it's all canon. If you want to follow me on social media, the best places to find me are on Twitter at DJMMarquis. That's spelled D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. And I'm also over on the old Instagram as MMarquis1205. Until next time, rest up, because we have a lot more exploring to do. I'll see you soon. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... Oh, the baron,